This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Spiritual Practice and Mindfulness. I'm Elizabeth Cronin, the host of the channel. Today, I'll be talking to George Kinder about his new book, A Golden Civilization and the Map of Mindfulness. Welcome to the show, George. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's really delightful to be here. I'm excited. So where would you like to begin? Well, I, I've been thinking about this for a while, and, and really I've been very excited about coming on uh, to the show with you um, because I, I knew you prepped me in advance a little bit that you were going to really give me some freedom in terms of sharing uh, what I felt like sharing. And that's such, so refreshing, I just want to say. And also that, um, because so often I've been interviewed so many times and, uh, and a lot of the focus is on the work that I've done professionally, which is in the money world. Um, I'm delighted to be on talking about the book and with someone who has mindfulness as part of their major frame of what they're working on as well. So thank you very much for asking me uh, to join you. Um, And I think what I'd like to say, a few things that almost no one knows about me. Um, Great. So uh, the first thing I'd like to say is that probably my two greatest heroes in life have been St. Francis and uh, Japanese poet, uh, not well known, named Ryokan. I don't know if do you know Ryokan's work at all. I don't know. Ryokan was is always considered in the top five of the Japanese poets of all time. He's considered as one of the five greatest Zen masters of all time, and is considered one of the five greatest calligraphers. Um. I think he's the best in all of them. <laughs> uh, um, he's just an extraordinary figure. And the thing that has that ins- inspired me about both St. Francis and Ryokan is that both of them um, were dedicated to lives of poverty. They made it, they were, de- and, and in that, in that life of poverty that they chose, they were dedicated to spiritual practice and a spiritual life. The, um, I, I think the reason that that has rarely, if ever, come out in an interview with me before is that my professional uh, life has been in the world of money. And so I think people have assumed that that is my background or my uh, passion uh, and not at all the case. The real canon St. Francis have inspired me the most. And the it, it's interesting. Um, I, I wrestle with this question more largely because I've prepared myself at various points for being questioned about it. How could real canon St. Francis, these two figures 
of pure spirit who lived lives of poverty, how how can you possibly have them as um, as your primary heroes when you live a, a relatively secular life uh, in in the world? And and I think well, there are a couple of uh, responses to that. One is that I I don't really live a secular life. I have to make a living, and I've had to make a living from early on. And I was good in in uh, mathematics. I minored in economics at Harvard, and so when I tried to employ what was a common saying in the seventies of you know follow your love, you know do what you love, and the you know and uh, and the money will follow. I, I don't know about you. Because you love, yeah. Go ahead. You also love poetry, poetry and photography, right? I think yeah, I read that. Exactly. So you didn't give those a professional go. Yeah. Well, um, no one would would pay me for my for any one of my poems, and and I never got anybody to pay me for a meditation either. So I I very quickly realized that 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 um, truism that phrase really really didn't work, um, and that you uh, it, you needed to that I needed to separate what I loved from uh, from making a living. So I I went and I did what I was good at, which I was good at numbers. Uh, I. And I became uh, quite good in the world of uh, finance, but all all through that time, I was dedicated to a creative life and a spiritual life. Um, in fact, I'd say probably over fifty. I've been meditating for fifty years, and I probably have averaged about three hours a day during that time. Um, much of that time, working actively in the world as well. Yeah, it's it's wow. Awesome. Yeah. It's something to me. That like, might be you might be, but have done the more most meditation of anybody I know. Three hours. Wow! wow. Very impressive. Well, uh, thank you. It it um it, it's it's been my passion as uh, and that's again why Rio Can and Saint Francis were models to me. What 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 they what they spoke of to me was that uh, no matter what you keep what is most profound inside of you, both alive and central. Uh, to them, it was a spiritual life, which is also the truth for, for me. Um, uh, and that that's the most important thing. One of the things that we don't realize when we think of, if we know anything about Rio Can or St. Francis, they both struggled tremendously in the world. Uh, living a life of poverty was very, very difficult. And they had to constantly confront um, the world of money. So a, as I've uh, taught people about money and wrestled with the world of money, I thought about that over and over again. And now as I've written this book, the um, a, uh, a Golden Civilization and the Map of Mindfulness, the primary thing I've been wrestling with is how do we bring uh, virtue, spirit, ethics, meaning, truth into a world that seems extremely flawed and very dangerous in our day. How do we do that? Um, and again, I think we have such a variety and, and I think the, with such a variety of flaws, I mean, it's not flawed in one particular way. I mean, you've, you've 
talk about, um, you know, the, just the polarization of politics. We've got climate change. We've got the Me Too movement. So it's it's it really is challenging and exciting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, both. I think, isn't it? I mean, it's. Uh, uh, I mean, the challenges sometimes you get very, you can get quite depressed from because you're you're worried that um, autocracy or or uh, global warming will uh, destroy what we hold dear. But uh, but that's the, I mean the point of that is for us to be challenged by it and to take it on. So. Um, so right on. And, and for me, it is mindfulness that more than anything gives us the, the strength or the character inside ourselves to do that. And not everybody practices mindfulness, but in some ways, all of us do. Don't you think? I mean, the, um, I think we, I think we do. And I think you, you even have a, a section in the book that kind of lays it out very simply for the reader about mindfulness, but it might help if you say, a little bit more um, about your what you what you think of as mindfulness. Great, great, thanks, Elizabeth. So, well, the the I think all of us are mindful when we hear a baby cry, for instance. Um, all of us are mindful when we're in a room of a hundred people and someone starts sobbing. I think all of us are mindful when. We step outside on the first day of spring and feel the breeze and smell the uh, uh, early aromas. Um, we're mindful when we smell fresh baked bread. So there are all these places where we come alive, where we're really alert and present. And each of us has our own domain where we're particularly um, mindful. And, and that's a wonderful thing. What is extraordinary about this thing that is being called mindfulness now uh, is that it's a practice that essentially cultivates the present moment and, and develops virtue. And it's a practice that has been studied now in thousands of scientific experiments over the last uh, 10, 20, 30 years, and also has an extremely rich uh, contemplative history uh, going back 2,500 years uh, that's also been uh, written and cultivated. So um, w what's really interesting to me there is that we can cultivate mindfulness inside ourselves. And that, that's an amazing thing. Um, I, when I think of it, I mean, one of the... Uh, uh, there, there are two scientific studies or sets of studies that I think about uh, around mindfulness in particular. One of them, uh, do you know the work uh, by Daniel Gilbert and Matthew Killingsworth? Do you remember the? Absolutely. Yes. yes. It's a phenomenal piece and it's written, it really comes out of the happiness movement. Uh, and in it, Daniel Gilbert, who has been for many years, uh, one of the most popular professors at Harvard with the most popular course. It's a course on happiness. He and Matthew Killingsworth designed an iPhone app and they gave it to thousands of people all over the globe, I think in 86 countries, something like that. And of all ages, uh, up into the people up into their eighties. And what it did was that 
periodically, randomly through the day, it would ping you. And when it pinged you, you had to answer three questions. So right away, are you happy or are you unhappy? Okay, yes or no. Are you, um, uh, are you present or focused or are you not present or focused? And then the third question is just, but what are you doing? And you'd think that somebody, you know, on the beach at Maui at sunset would be happy. And someone who'd come home from a 10-hour day and still had to make uh, dinner and then clean up and take the garbage out wouldn't be happy, right? I mean, that's kind of our right. right? Yeah. But the truth is that there's no correlation between those two. The, the correlation is entirely with happiness. And are you present in the moment? Are you focused? Um, and what's interesting about that in terms of mindfulness is that mindfulness is the, um, pra- is the practice that allows us to develop that presence and that focus, because that's what you're asked to do in mindfulness, to just to keep trying to come back and meet and experience the present moment. So it, it's quite extraordinary. You're actually developing focus, you're developing presence, you're developing happiness. I call it freedom. It's an experience of freedom, I think. Uh, so, um, so you asked me to talk about happiness. I think the only other thing that I would say is that at the same time that you're developing that, what happens is, and, and for those of you that are, that find it difficult, um, I, I empathize and I'm sure Elizabeth can empathize as well. It is difficult, right? It's, uh, uh, it's always difficult. Uh, I mean, even for me after 50 years, I will sit down at times and be struggling not to go to an email or not to respond to a text message or uh, not to leap up and and take care of something that I feel anxious or guilty about. Um, Well, I think something you said, something you said earlier about mindfulness, when you pointed out that we all have experienced it in certain circumstances, you know, that that experience of coming alive and alert, like I think you mentioned a baby crying or someone you know, starts to sob. And then you said each has his or her own domain. And I wonder, you know, wonder if you might say something about that too, because it is the practice, like the experience of sitting down to meditate. Some days go well and some days don't go so well. So there's a lot of, I guess, what would you say, um, variables or factors that, you know, you have to learn to manage, I think, if you really want to get the the most from the practice? Yes. Yes. I I think of it as, as learning to play the piano where at first you're all thumbs and uh, as you play it more than more, more and more, you get better and better, but um, it's tougher than playing the piano because there's a way there's a saying in, in, uh, in Zen, Zen mind, beginner's mind. And it's about how we constantly have to start over and, uh, so there's a way in which the practice of mindfulness is endlessly difficult. And at the same time, it's endlessly re- rewarding because we're getting more and more capable of being alert uh, and being connected and uh, with the world around us and being present to each other and to ourselves. It's really a practice of inner listening, which is a lovely way of thinking of it, I think. And then as we become stronger and stronger at our inner listening, 
um, we become better and better at listening to others. But because the present moment keeps changing, it also it is endlessly challenging. And that's part of why I love it, actually, um, because it, it, it's absolutely impossible to completely do it well. But after uh, a few minutes, usually in a meditation, sometimes it takes longer, uh, sometimes shorter, what happens is that we get quiet. And sometimes for, if you're just beginning, it might take you uh, several meditations to get really quiet. But at some point in a meditation, typically, we get quiet. And what's happened there is we've shifted from thinking about ourselves and all the things we've got to do to really just being present with sensations. And I think of that as selflessness, that we've given up our self-preoccupation and now we can just be here. And when that happens, we feel a tremendous sense of ease. And it's there that virtues uh, develop. But when we have that quietness and that selflessness inside ourselves, it's easier to recognize uh, patience, equanimity, generosity, kindness, courage, um, focus. And we're able to actually do some inner work that makes us stronger in all of those areas, actually builds virtue inside of ourselves. Um, so so I, I think that was what I mostly wanted to say about mindfulness to begin the to begin this. Um, so if, can I interrupt with a question just about the difference between mindfulness and meditation or, or the relationship between mindfulness and meditation, if you could say something about that? Yeah. Um, so, so you can be naturally mindful. And the more that you meditate in a, in a mindfulness kind of practice, the more that you are naturally mindful. There's a wonderful book by Daniel Goleman who gave us uh, the term, I don't think he originated it, but he popularized it, the term emotional intelligence in one of his first books. And the book that he's written most recently, I forget what it's called in America. Right now, today I'm in London and he, over here they call it Altered Traits. And um, and what it does is it, it looks at how the more that you meditate, the more that you have access to all these virtues, as well as to just being present, just being here. You're also smarter. One of the things I tell my 15-year-old daughters, because there's a wonderful study of, of uh, uh, young uh, adults in college who are taking their GREs, and they take them just before a six-week course in mindfulness and just after, and their scores go up between 15 and 30%. Um, so it's, uh, that's, where you, that's where you start to get some people interested. Yeah, exactly. And particularly the kids who go, oh, I don't know, I, you know, I don't want to sit there and all that. But it, it's um, so it sharpens the mind. But you were asking about the difference between mindfulness and meditation. That what we build from a mindfulness meditation and what we experience when we are mindful is we experience being here. We experience really being who we are. Um, in, in Zen, they might call it, we experience our true nature. Um, nowadays, there's a wonderful term that's used a lot and often in therapy uh, context of our, our authenticity. We, we, we really experience who we are. And the truth is that there's nothing in the world more stable 
or more grounding than that, than our just our ability to be ourselves. Uh, and I think when we're mindful, that's what happens as we experience that just naturally happening. So, so the interesting thing, go, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, so one of the things that I've done, one of the radical things in the book is that I have um, taken this understanding of mindfulness from uh, my own years of practice and study and, and uh, being a teacher of it for now 30 years. I've taken it and I've remapped time and space. So you might go, well, how do you do that? Well, the, the truth is, if you think about, have you ever experienced a moment of freedom in the past? And you go, well, yeah, I did this when I was 16 and that when I was 18. The truth is that you've never experienced a moment of freedom in the past. The only time you've ever experienced freedom is in the present moment. And when you reflect on that, and then you look at the fact is the only time you've ever ever experienced in your life is the present moment. One begins to question, well, why do we have a map then that is hugely dominated by the past and, and the future and where the present moment is this tiny little ephemeral thing? If the present moment right. is really, you know, so incredible for us and all we ever experience. So you've seen it. I don't know how that, how you took to that. I'd be curious. It's a challenging place in the book. It, it's a challenging, well, the whole concept is challenging of, of this shifting towards a different type of civilization because what you've just described about mindfulness is about tuning out and kind of tuning back to your authentic self and quieting down your mind where, at least in the United States, this is a culture of, and you address this a little bit, you know, the media and advertising and the message that we all grow up with is that things need to be bigger and better, new and improved, whiter and brighter, and that there's a lot you should be doing if you want to get ahead. And there's a sense of urgency. It's a, you know, even if it's just a one day only sale, yeah. those kinds of things. And the, the competitive nature of the society that we live in. So it's, the whole thing is, to me, I think, rather daunting. And I also meditate and know it, it brings about powerful changes, not just, you know, in test scores, but in, yeah, your capacity to be patient, your ability to see things from another perspective. Um, so, yeah, I, the, the time, the, the mapping of type, that, that was an aspect that I think I would benefit from hearing more from you about that. Yeah, great. Well, uh, I'm with you on all of this. And it's, it's, and again, it, it's, to me, it's very exciting to contrast uh, this new way of looking at uh, our experience in the universe with the way that we normally do. So that, for instance, that sale that's only happening in the next 24 hours, you got to act now to get it, uh, is, is appealing to the kind of the old map, the map of uh, a, 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 it's a map of scarcity, but it's it's um, in terms of time and space, it's a map of uh, uh, driving urgency into the present moment because of something happening in the future. Or usually, I mean, we respond to things because we feel guilty or or shame or something or 
regret about something that happened in the past and we feel opportunity looking into the future. So we map the world and sometimes it's as small as, you know, I, I just dropped my kids off at school and I've got to go uh, to Whole Foods next. And so you map the world in terms of that and you're figuring out the time so you get back for your meetings and all of that. So we, we use the map of time and space to be efficient as individuals. And yet in doing that, we're living in an abstracted world that has never been our reality. Our reality is the present moment. And, uh, and what happens with advertising and media, and it, you, we, in my book, I go through democracy and economics uh, in many ways and look at how we've been uh, kind of pulled into ways of responding to the world that end up having a lot more greed and attachment and a lot more aversion than is necessary because of the way the world is mapped. And if instead we actually understood uh, the world as arising from the present moment, and the, the map that I have, uh, you have to buy the book, but <laughs> the map that I have looks a little bit like an hourglass or a little bit like a black hole and a white hole combined if you're scientifically inclined. And the, um, with the present moment at the center, and what happens if you if you shift, if you understand that, in fact, our world arises from this moment, is that it, it actually becomes very exciting and all the more intriguing to, to learn to be a master of the present moment, which is what mindfulness makes us, uh, to learn, you know, we want to cultivate that present moment because it's where we experience freedom. And we know that the more we practice, we know this from science and, and uh, as well as from history, the more that we are present, the more moments there are in our life, and therefore the more freedom is possible there. So um, what shifting the map to, act, you know, we don't deny time and space. We don't deny past and future. We just simply shift the emphasis. And when we do that, it allows um, psychology and states of mind and contemplative practices to have uh, much more importance in the world so that we look at uh, our politicians and our leaders of, of industry and we begin to look at them not for what they can accumulate out there in the future, but for who they are right now, for the qualities that they are contributing of leadership, are they quali- are they qualities of truth and justice? Of are they fiduciary qualities? Are they qualities of kindness? Are we inspired by them? And with the present moment configured in this way, that becomes much more interesting because we realize that that's much more real than this acquisition uh, culture that we've uh, that we've found ourselves drawn into. So that's where I think it gets so it starts to feel daunting to me because with this capitalist society, what you're talking about is changing the way we measure things. And, you know, so much of what drives, you know, the the culture and and economics is how much money someone's making. So if you have a, a political figure that the, it always kind of comes down to what the bottom line is how, you know, are they bringing money back to the home state that, you know, so we can have jobs. And so it, it really is, a, I mean, is that what it is? You feel like a, it's a way of 
changing the evaluation process or? Yeah, I think this is akin to, was it Coper- Copernicus or Ptolemy or Galileo uh, of shifting from uh, thinking of the, the of the world as being the center of the universe to or the center of the solar system to realizing that the sun is. I think it's that right. kind of shift. And so I don't think it's going to happen immediately and overnight, but I think all of the movement that we have toward uh, mindfulness as, as being practiced now in corporations and uh, universities and, and uh, even primary schools um, will begin to shift that so that we're able to actually begin to contemplate what that shift looks like. It is very much about how we measure things and what measurements are most important. And it's very much, I, I, all of my books have been about freedom and this book very much is about freedom. How do we measure freedom? And when you measure it the way, you know, society currently measures it, well, you could have one man or one woman or one person or an oligarchy gather all the freedom in the world if, if freedom is measured by money. And right. that clearly is, uh, is, not, is not right and it's harmful. But if freedom is measured rather by our quality of experience in the present moment. And certainly that's impacted by money uh, in terms of our basic needs and, and uh, food and shelter and that kind of thing. But if it's measured by the quality of our experience in the present moment, then it isn't democracy and isn't economics meant to be about maximizing uh, uh, freedom uh, all across the world, uh, it, uh, you know, at, at the, the, and and in so doing, maximizing uh, kind of human resources. If um, if we maximize it by money, we find global warming, we find autocracy, we find uh, more and more power accumulated at the top, and more and more inequality and, and inequity and less justice. But if the, what what our objective is is to maximize freedom across the world, and it's a very different thing, and it's much more focused on the present moment. And so this this becomes very exciting that we, now we can talk about freedom in a new way, and in a way that uh, that is practical, and we can begin to relate it to economics and democracy also in a new way. So that money is no longer uh, the the primary objective. It's not that it's unimportant, but it's not the primary objective. The primary objective is maximizing freedom across the globe. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So I just, while you were talking, I was thinking again about um, how you factor in this idea of scarcity. Yeah. And when you say, so, I mean, I think it's, I just think it's a tricky thing for for people to wrap their head around that there would be enough for everybody and that somehow you could get everybody to be willing to 
and I guess in a way share it or not hoard it, you know, um, it's, I don't know if you could say a little bit more. I think that in your model, the scarcity part seemed, seemed important. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, um, first of all, there's no scarcity of present moments. We all have them. In fact, I mean, one of the things that the present moment has done for me is that it's made me all the more aware of how important it is for all creatures and all processes in the universe that anything that has a capacity to experience and make a change in the present moment has a capacity for a kind of understanding that mindfulness brings. So that all creatures' freedom really means something to me. But I talk mostly in the book about human freedom. And, uh, and in regard to that, there, you know, there are certain levels of, of, of scarcity that are important for us to uh, confront. So where people right. are really struggling in poverty, we find much higher levels of crime, much higher levels of unhappiness, much higher levels of, of uh, disrespect and, and trouble, basically, um, much higher levels of neuroses. Um, so one of the things I, I certainly advocate in the book is, is establishing a basic income. And that basic income might vary from nation to nation. Uh, but certainly here here in America, we've got plenty of resources to establish a basic income that is uh, perhaps just above poverty level. I don't know. That's really much more for the economists and the politicians to, to come up with. But it should be something where everybody feels they don't have to go out and, and uh, take advantage of other people in manipulative or harmful ways. So it supports, from a Buddhist standpoint, it supports right action, right speech, and right livelihood. And that's something that's easily doable. I mean, we've, we've got, um, there's so much money that's been squirreled away uh, by the billionaire class and, uh, and by institutions as well, large, large powerful institutions. It, it's really time that we placed an emphasis more on uh, on everybody having an opportunity, uh, which is what democracy, how democracy started. You know, when democracy started, it was much easier to go out and, and, uh, 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 and, and use land. <laughs> and, and nowadays the land's all bought up. Uh, in fact, the first notions of basic income come from uh, the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance, where for the first time land was bought up and it was thought that's unfair to people. Um, when in the old days, people were born and they could go and use whatever land was there. Uh, and so they thought, well, let's, let's have a basic income. Uh, so some of the idea dates from there. I think we need to confront that issue about, uh, about the vast inequities that we have in the world and at least bring people up so that they can choose what they want to do with their life. Uh, I will say the book does a great job. You, you provide so much information about the financial um, inequities and how the money's been, you know, tied up and not, it, it, it's not out there available for everybody to share. Um, yeah. So how are you, because I know you're out there also having conversations with people about all of this Yeah. and how, what's the response been? Yeah, uh, it's been amazing and and really heartwarming 
uh, Elizabeth. I hope I hope you can come to one. They're they're really quite wonderful. And um, so what I, what I've done just to bring the audience in on this. Um, uh, I, I originally I thought I'd publish the book uh, going into the political season in 2018, and then I realized how important it was that. People be out and whatever persuasion they are, they be out and if, if they feel passionate about their uh, what's right to do in the world, they be out there trying to make it happen. So we decided to put off publish, publishing until March. And what we decided to do instead, a wonderful idea that when I say we, that it's uh, the, um, that my staff, basically, I have a, an institute uh that's been an institute of my financial work, which is known as life planning. And the um, what we decided to do was to use the, the structures of the conversations I've been training financial advisors to use, which are conversations that bring clients uh, to levels of trust inside themselves and to uh, their highest aspiration and inspirational place, their place of deepest meaning. And then the advisor uh, helps them to make that happen in the world. So it's a just a powerful thing. And what we decided to do, and this is really the structure of the book as well, but we thought, why don't we make this happen as conversations all over, all over the world? A, a golden civilization isn't something that should be uh, written about solely by this white, you know, 70-year-old man in America, it should be something that starts from the grassroots, from the ground up. So we have conversations in uh, India, and uh, we're uh, working on developing them in Kenya. Uh, we are, I'm doing a, a tour throughout Asia uh, this summer. Um, and the conversations have this marvelous structure where um, – the first thing we do in the conversation is that the whoever's gathered uh, calls out what they think belongs in a golden civilization. And we, we it's just beautiful. And we, we imagine that we're there. You know, it might be hundreds of years from now, it might be thousands of generations from now, but we imagine we're there. We've made it. And then so we just call out what's there. And you fill up the circle with these wonderful terms, you know, kindness and collaboration and uh, creativity and vitality and um, a spirit and just wonderful. We fill the circle with terms. And, um, and, and, and when we've designed that, uh, then, then we make an offer to the, to the community. We say, well, uh, what, what if we were to make this real? What if, in the next gener- in this generation, next twenty to twenty-five years, linking up with groups all over the world that are also doing the same thing. What if this were to become the reality we live in? And of course, you know, there's skepticism that comes up for some people, but I, I, you, there's also tremendous energy. Like, wow, yeah, this makes sense. And my point of view has been, why not? I mean, we're so. We're so intelligent as a species, and we have such good hearts. Why, why, not, why not just simply say no to corruption and lacks of integrity? Why not make the golden civilization happen now? 
And, you know, we've, we made it to the moon. We've, we've created huge democratic structures all over the world in the last 250 years that never existed before. Why not make it happen, make a golden civilization so that we aren't terrified by climate change. We aren't terrified by autocracy. We know that those freedoms are secure. So in these conversations, each community locally designs their own golden civilization. And of course, there's huge overlap from because uh, because they're just calling out what are the virtues inside themselves that they long to be encounter when they're out in the world. And then the next thing we do is we look at, well, OK, so what are the obstacles? So everybody lists their obstacles. And, you know, what, what's really interesting is how often the inner obstacles come up first, like fear and greed or very quickly identified, but also, you know, corruption and politics and corporations and all the rest. So we list the obstacles and then we go, okay, let, let's get, let's get busy. What, what do we need to do? What is, what do we need as a planet to do uh, as a UN or what do we need as a nation to do? What do we need as a, a country? What do we need locally to do? What do you and I need to do? And so we list all the action steps that we can think of, right? Emphasizing the ones we think would really make a difference in a hurry and then the end of the conversation is, okay, having had this conversation together, what are you willing to make a commitment to that you might not have been willing to before you came in two hours ago? What, what, what's changed for you? And what will you commit to doing over the next few weeks until we meet again? Maybe we meet again in two weeks. Maybe we meet again in three months. But what are you willing to do in that period of time? And so it ends on this inspirational no moment with everybody talking about listening better to their neighbors, acts of kindness, uh, taking on some political action or some action to help the planet, uh, and and or and people. One one group has come up with creating a manual of wisdom for people from age six to eighty six. Hmm. And uh, and that's a, that's an ongoing group here in the London area that uh, uh, that I've had the privilege of, of uh, meeting with twice, but they've done they've had six meetings already. So there are these wonderful things that come out of this, and lots of inspiration. I think something I think something you referenced too that that seems to be really important too is is participation, trying to. You know, maybe it's sort of the grassroots idea as well, but getting more people to participate and to have as many people to join in and speak up and be part of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's so much there uh, to talk about. Um, you know, you don't want to make a should for people. Um, you know, we're pushed around enough as it is. And yeah, what happens and i know you you'll be you know very aware of this i mean we we live in uh, the term for it is codependency we live in a codependent relationship with politics and our politicians and and you can absolutely don't you think so i mean it's just it's astonishing and and, and it's stunning and it's and and when you recognize that it's like you can feel a deep wound inside yourself that you would even think of participating in that way. But it's huge. It's huge. And so how do we break out of that? And 
these golden civilizations have been very useful. Some people say that what they're going to do is do more practice of mindfulness. And, and I, 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 what my position on these conversations is we want to support everybody, whatever they think of that, that will be their action. But what we want to help them do is to break out of this codependency, this lethargy, this sense of resentment, blame, and complaint about the political culture. And if we can, uh, if we can, through a community that has joy and hope and action uh, and a sense of vision, uh, through that kind of community, I think we can do that. So uh, that's my exciting thing. And I think participative democracy can be successful, but just voting and then being disappointed afterwards and complaining isn't going to make much happen. So as I was listening to you talk, I just made a, a new connection between your, 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 about what you're trying to grapple with here. The whole, when you were talking earlier about mindfulness and people that meditate have a greater chance of connecting with their authentic self or their real self. Or, and I think that that actually, I just had this thought listening to you that how important that is, because if someone's going to do more, is going to speak up or get more involved or, you know, start, just start to participate. They have to feel like they matter. And I think the way things are now, so many of us don't feel like we matter. And so there's a sense of why bother, you know, what, what can I do? And Tara Brock talks a lot about this, just this pervasive sense. A lot of us have that we're not good enough there, you know, nothing's going to be enough. And, so there's a little discouragement out there. And I know for myself that meditating and, you know, working on becoming more mindful helps me feel connected to a part of myself that is, that is more worthy and that deserves to participate, should be included, who matters more. And so I think that's, an, you know, just something about the way you're talking helped me realize, of course, you know, mindfulness has to be a part of a golden civilization because we have to get everybody to, you know, before they can experience the freedom, I think they have to feel worthy. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, I think they're very connected. I think feeling worthy is a kind of freedom uh, that we feel more and more because, because of our practice. And uh, I mean, there's so many, so many ways that mindfulness helps. One of the ways that I, I mean, a lot of times people, and I, I was challenged on this the other day, I gave a golden civilization conversation down in Virginia, which was very exciting, down Charlottesville, you know, which has clearly gone through tremendous trauma. So much. Yeah, yeah, over the last couple of years. And it was a, a somewhat diverse uh, community, uh, but a lot, of, uh, a lot of people from the university as well. And one of the people there, a very intelligent person challenged me around how Buddhism and meditation and all that is all about acceptance and equanimity. And there's certainly truth to that. And his challenge was, you know, how do you connect your practice to being active, engaged in the world, to being an activist even? That's a common question. Isn't that? And I, and I, uh, so I, I went back and I, uh, you know, I've taught 
I've taught Buddhism for uh, 33 years now, and I went back and I thought about the Eightfold Path. And I don't know if you, you've studied that at all, but basically the Eightfold Path of the Buddha outlines what he thought were the things that would uh, lead us to awakening, to being free from suffering. And it really divides into two segments. And half of those segments are about meditation, about mindfulness, the right concentration, right effort, and right mindfulness are the primary ones. And then the other half are about engagement in the world and their right speech, right action, and right livelihood. But what's interesting is the, is the interpretation that was, has been given to right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And I think it, there's a great deal of accuracy to it, and yet it's not quite up to date. So the interpretation has been that uh, m- most of the ways that, that he defined us acting in the world are in terms of kindness, and it's mostly negatives. He says not harming, uh, n- uh, not speaking falsehoods, um, you know, that, that kind of, of thing. And, um, uh, and what, I, what I, I've realized is a, a couple of things. One is that the practice of mindfulness itself, because the present moment is so challenging, it is impossible to be with the present moment consistently, moment after moment after moment, because it keeps changing. So what that practice is actually doing for us, in in addition to this piece of authenticity that you've been describing, is that it's actually giving us uh, more and more practice of uh, being awake in every new moment that arises. The, The more that you practice, let's say that normally you're aware of 10, 15, three, five moments in a minute, and now suddenly you're aware of several hundred. Each of those moments, you're alert and awake. So there's an engagement more in the world uh, that is, uh, uh, well, it's active and and powerful. In terms of, of right speech, right action, and right livelihood, three things have happened since the, the Buddha 2,500 years ago. One of them is that we, uh, the world has become global. So the process of globalization means that you and I, when we drink with a plastic straw right now or eat with a plastic spoon, we're suddenly aware that the plastic from that, from that uh, uh, spoon might end up in a whale's belly or might end up uh, in, back in our food chain. And so the globalization means that the act of harming is no longer a moment of harming another that we immediately recognize, but it's become institutionalized. So that, and that's the second thing, that the processes of the universe, of of, uh, civilization, have been systematized and structured uh, uh, into institutions that have power all over the world. And then there's a third thing that's happened. So, uh, so what that means is that our harmfulness, our right, wrong speech, uh, wrong action, and wrong livelihood can impact. Uh, we participate in wars. We participate in weapons manufacture. We participate when our politicians lie to us or our corporations uh, spread propaganda about global warming or whatever. We participate in that because we've given them that power, because of the third thing that exists, and that is 
the democratization that has occurred uh, throughout society, particularly over the last 250 years. So what happens now is that right speech, right action, and right livelihood, it's global, and it requires democratic action, part of our livelihood, to protect our freedom of speech, our freedom to practice mindfulness, uh, is for us to be engaged uh, in, in a democratic way in the world. So I, I, I think at this point we are called to do that. Uh, and as I say, I don't want to make it a should for anybody, but I think these groups that we've begun to form uh, can inspire you to do individual acts of kindness or can inspire you to just do more mindfulness practice, or they can inspire you to stand up. And, and the piece that I think would be added to the Buddha's teaching about right speech in particular is that it's time because we are collaborators in society as it exists. It is time for all of us to speak truth to power. And what mindfulness enables us to do, to do is to do that selflessly without attachment. And that's an incredible, uh, uh, really awakening, point of awakening for the human species to have arrived at. Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. That's actually kind of a nice place to end as we get close to our time being done. Um, so maybe I'll let that be the final word. I do want to ask you, though, if if there's if you want to say something about these these conversations and what a listener might do if they want to want to participate in one of them. I think that might be helpful as a means of saying, you know, What's next for the listeners? What's next for you? What are you? What else are you working on? Great, yeah. Thank you, Elizabeth. So I'm um, the uh, the website for the conversations, uh, and also has a link to the book and all of that, so you'll be able to learn more about what I've done as well. But the link to the conversations is www.agoldencivilization.com. So it's not just golden civilization; it's a goldencivilization.com. And the uh, it, it, we've ha- had conversations now in five continents. Uh, there have been over 100 conversations. I've participated in maybe 40 of them. So we have people leading them all over the world. And, uh, and there's so much information there about how to do them, where they're happening, how to initiate them, uh, or how to join them. So uh, I would highly recommend and um, and I'm Elizabeth. I'm on a world tour. I mean, I'm in London right now. I'm going to uh, Paris and Amsterdam shortly. I uh, this summer I'll be headed to Mumbai, Singapore, Hong Kong, where I'll be talking about democracy, uh, which is quite going to be quite challenging and exciting and interesting. And uh, Tokyo, uh, coming back, spending more time in Boston, St. Louis, uh, California, Honolulu. Um, really wherever I'm called, I'm going right now. I'm a man on a mission. And are you being invited by different groups, organizations, or how are you, how are you navigating such a, you know, a broad and, you know, extensive tour? 
Yeah, I'm I'm invited, and uh, so sometimes I'm invited by uh, the financial world that knows me. Sometimes I'm invited by uh, universities, by spiritual figures, or by friends who know me. What typically what happens because we have to fund this somehow is that I'll be invited to give a speech somewhere, and I get paid for that speech. Like I'm going to St. Louis. I'm very excited about it in uh, um, in September, and. Uh, immediately when I got invited to uh, to give the speech and to be engaged and be paid for the trip and everything, I circled around all my friends. And so we're reaching, doing outreach to uh, Washington University. And I think something's going to happen there. We're, we've done outreach to a major church, major synagogue, and a major mosque in, the, uh, in St. Louis. And then we're going to reach out to friends. So I'm trying to create multiple conversations wherever wherever I go. Um, but start starts out by being invited. That's nice. That's that's really nice. It's it is interesting that you know you're you've you've written many books and you do have quite a reputation for financial planning. And now it's it's you're you're trying to help us all sort of plan for the future and and to you know build in the possibility of having a you know a golden civilization. And I think it's a pretty it's a pretty neat, inspiring, and impressive uh, effort on your part. Well, thank you. I, I think it's it's time to make it happen. Thank you. Well, and thank you for taking time today uh, to, to talk with all of us and to share your ideas and tell everyone a little bit more about your book. My pleasure, uh, Elizabeth. Really, really wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you.